A good day to y'all. Welcome back to the channel. I am joined today by my brother again. If you haven't seen the first one, please do check it out with him. I'll put it up right now here. Um, I just said we wouldn't do a recap, but I'll, I'll do a recap. I think it's actually useful. You're right. So we spoke a bit about his life, about uh, Nietzsche, uh, Friedrich Nietzsche. I think he spent a lot of time on. And then I asked some more <laughs> philosophical questions, I guess. Lex Fridman-esque, <laughs> to my own detriment. No. Um, so to continue along those lines, I have a lot of questions for my brother. I've always had them. He was usually my person uh, who I would ask these questions to because he thought about them. <laughs> Not a lot of other people did. So um, this first question, I think, is one that gave me a lot of anxiety um, as a teenager. And he actually removed that anxiety from me at the time. And the reason I got this anxiety is because of Sam Harris. So let's start off with, does free will exist? That's a super difficult question that I'm not going to be able to answer. But I do know that the reasons often presented against free will um, are usually very bad. So it's, it's, it's an ongoing debate. So you can go like way down the rabbit hole and then super sophisticated philosophical arguments. And then you can kind of see that maybe there is some leeway more this position or that, that position. So it's very difficult. I'm personally inclined to say that free will does exist. That's also because one of my uh, well first teachers, now colleagues at the University of Utrecht, uh, Niels van Miltenburg, uh, I can refer to his, his, his work, but he has a great defense of, of free will that I will not be able to... Um, unfortunately do any justice to but i can say that what's usually the case that's made against free will is to look at uh, a brain scan and to see for instance you know like that i think they, they set up an experiment and then you know you have the subjects in the experiment who are then um, asked to push a button yes or no and then when they push a button you can actually see before they decide before they um, let's say consciously identify themselves with pushing this button, um, you can already see a brain signal. So that's very interesting because then often the scientists who um, are doing great work but are not great philosophers, they um, end up concluding like, oh, because you already see a signal before the subject was consciously saying that uh, yeah, he or she actually identified with this. Uh, therefore, we know that actually something is going on in the, in the brain and only after the fact we sort of explain that to be our own free will, but actually it already started in the brain. Um, and that's a bit tricky because we don't know how free will works. So we don't know the relations of time to free will. So obviously I, I see how this um, causation sort of, or causal link might be made, but it's not to say that this is actually how it goes. So you can also imagine that there's actually a very difficult process ongoing and that as stuff in your head gathers, if you like start thinking about am I going to do this? Yes or no? That at some point there is that moment where you're like, okay, yes, I'm going to do this. And then you're also like, you know, and then you have sort of this uh, confirmation of that where you're like, yes, I'm going to do it. Um, but that's not to say that, you know, the fact that, you know, the, the fact that you consciously said, yes, I'm going to do it, or that you press the button, that that is the point of decision for you. You know, it's to say like everything has been building up towards that decision. Yeah. And there's also something to be said that these experiments are, way too simple so like this is obviously about just pushing a button so even if we grant the scientists their um 
had to put it this way like if we if we grant them that this does sort of disprove free will um then we first still have to understand so how does that work with for example larger life choices because maybe you know parts of our lives are uh, determined like are very much predetermined and i think that makes a lot of sense like we're very predetermined in our actions um but then we can sometimes um choose like how we set up our conditions in such a way that we know that we will be less prone to do this and it's interesting where does that come from or that plan to do something in five years you know where does that come from is that also predetermined because that's way different than pushing a button because that's also like a yes or a no so i'm just saying like the free will debate is very uh difficult i personally believe that from some perspective you can argue there's free will from another one there isn't but certainly not from the rather simplistic way in which neuroscientists including sam harris are uh, pr- disproving trying to disprove free will so that's I, yeah. yeah i remember listening to robert sapolsky who's a famous neuroscientist um yeah. speaking to uh, andrew huberman about it and he's saying like i don't think we have a shred of free will and he explains the same thing you explained just now and i guess what bothers me about this argument the most is that these people don't take the arguments to their logical conclusions. So if you really believe that deeply in your heart, then there's no logical basis for our justice system, for example. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, you yeah. couldn't blame any criminal for doing anything if there's no free will. So I think same with uh, believing in that certain things are absolutely wrong. I think it's very detrimental if you don't. Like for me, it's almost a strategic choice at this point because... I, I'm not going to try to scientifically argue my way there, yeah. um, but <laughs> but really try to chase it to its logical conclusion. It's not going to go very well. I think that's super valuable because like, um, which is not to say that, you know, the legal case proves there is free will. No, of course not. To say kind of like the free will debate is super messy. It's very difficult. Like, so if you really go deep into the weeds, let, let's say you devote your life to this you'll still end up with a position that you might be sure of, but that other people will pose counter arguments against, um, like also sort of in hardcore uh, analytic philosophy and stuff. Um, but then still you can ask yourself, let's say even if I were to consciously sort of really conclude for myself, there's no free will, then, inst- then indeed still you have to treat other people as if there is free will. And that makes it so difficult. So maybe it's like, the fact that it's such a complicated debate that honestly we don't know for sure and that's i mean we can get into that but that's also related to the fact that you know there might be a very like a strong difference between like the external world and the appearances like how it appears to us and that we get into kantian arguments surrounding free will and kant actually has a, a very brilliant argument for the existence of free will which fits in his system but then gets criticized later but my point is because it's so complicated you might as well continue with the practical case say like well we need free will and so therefore you know it's rational for me to believe like on a moral on a practical basis in free will even though i can't prove it theoretically but it also cannot be disproven theoretically so therefore you know it's rational to continue believing in free will yeah, yeah. thank you yeah, I like this answer. I think that um, it's, it's just so dangerous, you know. I think, but like you said, um, they may be good scientists, but bad philosophers. Yeah. Um, I think it shows that if you're an expert at something, it doesn't mean it crosses into other domains. And that's really what we often assume with scientists for some reason. I think that we take scientists to be um, 
to have a lot of authority over what is good and what's what's wrong and i don't think science can tell us anything about that to be honest um you uh, already seen the new uh, christopher nolan movie oppenheimer or not no i haven't seen it oh you should watch it because it's precisely it's well it it doesn't like i uh, should say like explicitly to uh, address this but you know like the movie struggles with this scientist who was like you know building an atomic bomb with a bunch of scientists and then how good are they really at policy and then you really see like no the scientists are just one part of the puzzle of the very complicated puzzle of you know what actually ends up happening yeah um, i would like to maybe add like one thing uh that i kind of forgot because you also have the perspective of someone like spinoza and i know that Ferveki is a little bit uh he is a fan of spinoza's arguments surrounding free will so Spinoza is also an ultra like determinist, but not in the neuroscience way, because according to Spinoza, you know, God and nature are synonymous, but not in the sense like, oh, so God is just nature. It's more like nature is always sort of um, within God, but God is not outside of nature at the same time. Um, and therefore, it's good to for him. It makes a lot of sense that actually God doesn't have a choice <laughs> in some ways. God cannot choose to do something because because according to Spinoza, God is so perfect that he only acts according to his own necessity. God needs to do something. Like if he could do differently, that would imply that God also can do wrong. But according to Spinoza, no, no, God only follows uh, God's own nature, like God's own necessity. And therefore, actually, God in some ways doesn't have free will as we normally see it. Yeah. And in the same way, he says, like, you know, people, you know, we get actually uh we have all this stuff sort of working against us in life so we get influenced by all these factors sometimes we get influenced by our appetites by our passions but he's like if we are aligned in a rational way if we actually follow our nature we are also still determined but by our very nature so therefore like we are determined in the best way possible but then obviously there's a question like how much free will then is there but according to him there's also no free will but not in a bothersome way because he believes us following our nature to the logical extent is actually like that for him determinism is free you know it's like the opposite because if you're not determined by your uh your own nature then you are just being thrown around randomly by chaos and it's yeah. kind of like oh, gee, like no, no no if you follow your own nature that is given to you sort of by god that then you're still determined by that but that is freedom because you you'll experience that as freedom so it's kind of like and that's, that also goes back to the practical case. Maybe that is still in some ways determined, but that is what we will experience as freedom. And that's maybe more important, you know, but it's another side. Of the uh, it feels a bit like a red pill, blue pill type of situation because it may be good for us, but I don't know if I would want it. <laughs> I would want it to be that way. Uh, yeah. But I, I have heard the argument of like, you don't want to have full free will. Like you don't want to have to think about everything you do. Like, of course you want to have some things on autopilot that makes sense to me. Yeah. Um, but the small, the small alterations you can make in your life that, that I guess feed back into your long-term habits. Yeah. That's at least what I experienced the most free will. Yeah. And I, I think I, I totally agree. Like there's also like this, you know, you and I have been, have taken an interest in, I think I felt, René Girard and we talked about him last time a little bit and he talks about mimetic desire you know like that we sort of we want things because we have other people who want them in our environment or maybe on social media so they're like our models for desire in some ways um, and then he also says like yo so so basically all our desire is in some ways mimetic desire um, 
and you could are like he tries to argue so therefore we should really think carefully about our models and like someone like jesus is a good model to imitate because the way he lives actually leads to like uh to an end to the scapegoat mechanism due to which uh, innocent victims will be sacrificed continuously um but that's interesting because it's kind of like so all your desires come from this model and at the same time he seems to imply but you know so if you choose the right models that's very interesting like where does choosing the right yeah model? exactly so maybe like there's a little bit of you know choosing who we can sort of you know mimetically uh, uh, imitate yeah. yeah and i would say that like honestly at this point i've kind of kind of lost a lot of faith in the scientific worldview so i don't i take it with a grain of sand let's say um and let's say if you maybe correct yeah that's sorry worldview maybe yeah. the worldview is good so there's that's... a difference between sci being scientific and scientific as wolfgang smith would say yeah so i'm not scientific i'm scientific in certain domains but in metaphysics it's hard to rely on scientific experiments to uh to determine things but one thing wolfgang smith likes to say um who's a brilliant thinker there will be episodes about him on this channel as well uh, but he says that it takes two wills to get salvation from god for example explain that that's a christian idea and well if if <laughs> if you didn't have free will then then there would be no choosing god then you would just there, there would be nothing to do here basically everyone would be okay everyone would be saved um the idea is that you need to choose salvation if you want to get it and so from a christian perspective christian metaphysics uh, there is free will for sure but once you're united with god the idea is that there there is no more will left and it's not what you want either yeah that, that's when you're finally um you're you're, you're rid you're rid of sin so that's exactly. the idea so, so then you no longer want something else and you maybe even no longer have the freedom to want something else which is kind yes. of yes but that that's where i hear spinoza like okay that then freedom no freedom yeah. is the liberty actually yeah. it's what you want like freedom in many ways is is not a good thing in that sense but here on earth uh, i think it's very important well this is also like a kind of something that i would like to talk to you about maybe but like we can go there a little bit later but in yeah. this definition of freedom is so interesting because you can be free from constraints which is how we think of free will or we can be free to do something but that can actually involve certain constraints but certain constraints that allow us still to um you know like, like let's say uh <laughs> that if you go bowling and you're a little child and then you have to like the, the the little things on the side to make sure the fences Fences exactly, uh, and those constraints will actually allow you, as a child, to make sure that the ball goes sort of in between. Yeah, but in some ways, so then you're freer to throw a strike in that regard, even though yeah. you're also less free because you can't throw it in the thing. You know, so it's kind of like, so what kind of freedom are we talking about? You know, the freedom to do something which has constraints, or complete like libertarian free will from constraints, which doesn't involve a positive sense of what freedom could be. So that's something else. I think, it, yeah, no, I think it's interesting to to chase yeah. that. I think because I think it shouldn't be static what that is. Like um, Vicky talks about having an optimal grip on life. You need to have the proper constraints and the proper freedom to, to make that happen. But because reality is always changing, at least our reality, uh wakeful reality um you need that to be dynamic i would say do you know what i mean 
Yeah, I know what you mean. I like reality mean. is changing in that sense. Um, so I, I agree with that. And I think we should we should talk more about this idea of, of, of freedom because I actually wanted to speak a bit about the, the libertarians and the Bitcoiners um, because I myself, I'm very convinced by a lot of the arguments. So logically, they make a lot of sense to me. But I see something lacking in the worldview, philosophically speaking. So even though economically, I might I may, might agree with some of a lot of the ideas, actually. And I have someone on my channel uh, in two days who professes these ideas very eloquently. Um, yeah, I feel like it misses, misses an aspect of freedom. So you were just alluding to, to the two different freedoms. Can you repeat that? Yeah, so I should give credit where credit is due. This is um, mostly credited to uh, a philosopher called Isaiah Berlin, who uh, in the 20th century really made a sharp distinction between positive liberty and negative liberty. Uh, and he actually ended up sort of in the libertarian way, almost like kind of vouching for negative liberty, that it's more important than positive liberty. Um, so first, we need to define them a little bit. Negative liberty, so negative freedom, is um, really understand as freedom from constraints, kind of what I just mentioned, you know, so like that. And that's very important because, you know, you don't want to uh, walk down the street and have, for instance, or like, let's say, you know, this, these are issues surrounding mandatory uh, vaccinations, the no no right to any abortion. So like there's all these things that 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 the that the, the government can do, and you want to be free from their saying over you what you can do with your choices, kind of right. So you want you don't want to be constrained by what the what the government says you can and can't do. So that's a certain kind of negative liberty, and that's usually the kind of freedom that's associated with uh, libertarian thinking. And then you have positive freedom, which is about like, okay, that's nice, but there's obviously a downside to this. So let's say, you know, um, we could say that during uh, the 17th century in, in France, you know, people complained about the bourgeoisie, you know, and the bourgeoisie and, and, and all the, you know, Louis XIV, and they were all rich. And you have the elite in, in France, but they could reply like, hey, you know, like uh, you could say in some sense that the elite is just as free as you know the the proletariat to sleep underneath the bridge at night as opposed to in a nice fancy castle but they just choose not to but obviously this is kind of where that freedom goes wrong so like they're free to do that but they won't do that because they their freedom in some ways is much more constrained in a positive way where they're like yo okay but they are free to do so much more they're free to good housing to um to uh yeah lots of wealth, etc. And you can say that about the proletariat in that sense, you know, or about just impoverished people in a society in general. So it's like, maybe the other aspect of freedom that we should be discussing is not just like, okay, I want to be free to do whatever I want, but also, wait, to do what exactly? Like, what are the positive ideals that we're shaping that we want to be central in freedom? And maybe for instance, that's a right to housing, maybe a right to food, maybe a right to autonomy. And then it becomes very difficult, but that could all be part of freedom in some ways. And that's more often associated with a more left-wing type of thinking. And sometimes that goes so far that they <laughs> take complete disregard of the negative freedom, which is also super important to maintain, because otherwise, you know, you can just say like, well, we think, yeah, you know, for instance, like this was obviously a huge controversy during COVID, but it's like, okay, um, you can consider the idea of having to uh, vaccinate everyone because you want to preserve freedom in the health sense and say like well we should all be positively free so we all want to be healthy so therefore we have to do this but then you take away so much of the negative freedom which is people's right to choose whether or not they want to do that and 
that can be okay in certain circumstances, but sometimes the circumstances, you have to wonder like, what is the right decision here? But it's always kind of a balancing between those two freedoms. I'm not sure if that makes any sense. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I, okay. I hear you loud and clear. I I find myself torn off somebody's questions simply because I wonder what the constraints are on the state. Um, how do you shackle the Leviathan as, um, I forget the, the person who wrote the, the book, but it-, it Thomas Sorry? Thomas What's... Hobbes wrote the Leviathan. Oh, okay, yeah. So um, it, it's important that, that you're able to to constrain that, that the person or the, the group of people that, that hold that, uh, what, what you say, positive positive freedom over you, let's say. Yeah. <laughs> Such a pernicious uh, way to describe it almost. Um, yeah, I've heard Neil, Neil deGrasse Tyson argue similar things. It's like, yeah. Same in traffic, you know, stuff like this. Yeah, no, it's difficult. I feel that for sure, um, especially in this age, it's very hard to constrain that power much, much more so than it was before. And that's why I always hesitate with with granting it yeah. um, this positive power. And also you could ask the question of, okay, even if you don't regulate it from the state down to the people, Oftentimes, it does actually end up well, let's say. So a, a libertarian idea is, for example, that the state shouldn't do anything more than um, help people's lives. Well, let's say life, liberty, property. So make sure that, that people aren't murdered. Make sure that their property isn't, uh, isn't messed with and that they have liberty to do, to do as they please. And, and often what, what people in this space would argue is that once you start to, to say, like, provide housing or provide food, um, you actually remove the competition of, of, of the people, mm-hmm. um, of, of, of say, let's say, the entrepreneurs providing these, these things. So then the price goes up and stuff like this. So yeah. I, find it, I find it very difficult to, to actually speak about it politically. Yeah. Um, no, I know, I know. And, and I also think that's sort of, you know, Verveke talks about the necessity, and Peterson does too, so to some extent, like of opponent processing. You know that it's so important to have, you know, the right and the left sort of have this constant. You know, Peterson always used the example, like if you do, if you try to move your fist, like kind of like this, it's actually very difficult to do that very carefully. But if you give it sort of a counter argument, you could do much care, much more careful. So it's kind of interesting how that works. In the same way, you could maybe have a a proper um opponent processing so indeed like really a processing yeah. sort of opponent uh, i don't know what what the other word is but basically you know where you just have two opponents who do not get to something productive but actually exactly uh, and that's what the right and the left ideally should be doing uh, and i think that goes to like what you're talking about because it's just whatever we do decide the government should be able to sort of infringe on in terms of our negative freedom we should really think about, okay, how much then? And do we have a check on that? And what, you know, if compared to the market, you know, they really mess it up in some ways. Uh, and those are really good questions to consider. It's just, uh, I just know, like from a philosophical standpoint, and that's maybe why I'm a little bit more um, prone to, how should I say it? Uh, a little bit more democratic, uh, less libertarian thinking than you. Yeah. Social democratic is because I am, for instance, persuaded by certain communitarian thinkers and those, so that's not communist, communitarian, I want to be clear. Um, uh, and those are people like Charles Taylor um, and 
uh, you have a bunch of other uh, very interesting scholars in that domain. Um, but I would say specifically Charles Taylor, he makes a good argument uh, in his essay on atomism, which I think I've had you yeah. <laughs> at some point. But that, you know, if we consider the primacy of rights theorists, so the people who think like the rights are very important, so the right to freedom of something, um, that's kind of, it's kind of a logical mistake in some ways, because to say that rights are more important than anything else, let's work that out for a little bit, because then you're like, okay, so we want to say that, you know, it's important to live in a society that uh, cultivates the primacy of rights, that really says like your right to freedom is the most important thing you really could have. But then it's hard to say how that could really work for more than one ge generation, because at some point you have to think, okay, there should probably be some kind of incentive to build a community in which you, you know, gather together, in which you have education, in which you then conclude, oh, freedom is really important. But that actually shows that on a practical level, you have to really um, sort of develop as a community first and have this sort of need for community before you then conclude like, okay, and now within this community, we need individual freedom, but you can't start with individual freedom and then build the community. It's kind of like, or it, or you can't even start with individual freedom and end with individual freedom because then you'll just, you'll be free from the state. You'll be an atom. Yeah, exactly. And then but, at some point, you know, the state will take over. Yeah. Yeah. I heard what you're saying, but yeah. even if, if you start with individual freedom, couldn't people just assemble on their own? Like, why do they need to have the, why do they need to be incentivized to do this? What do you mean? Like, uh, can, can you explain that a little bit? Better? Well, maybe I'm misunderstanding you, but I think you said um, you can't start with individual freedom, individual rights mm -hmm. before uh, getting to a community. So you need a community first and then you establish individual rights. Taylor calls it like the principle of belonging, which should be, uh, which should hold primacy over rights, such as the right to freedom. Yeah. yeah. But you, you can have individual rights and still... Mm -hmm. be part of a community you know like yeah. I, for example i have individual rights but i'm a communist in my house over here like i i don't yeah. care with my girlfriend what, what she takes yeah. uh, does it can that play at the same time yeah no i think so i think so i think it's just like if we want rights to, like if we want rights to be ingrained in a certain let's say um you know a constitution or something like that that constitution yeah. that is part of a country which should hold the principle of belonging first because of course let's let's think about it in the Peugeot sense like it should be like a team that coheres in some ways around like you know a common unity point uh and then from that you can then conclude like okay in the constitution we're then going to put that freedom is really important and that's fine but we should acknowledge that if we want that the state to acknowledge our freedom and we also want to be part of that state you know yeah then exactly we should also uphold the principle of belonging, which is need to build the state to think about what should the state look like? What kind of ideals does the state want to do? And yeah. if we do then the state has the right to exclude you completely because it's like, well, you know, you don't want to be part of this. You don't hold the principle of belonging as something important. So therefore, you know, we're also going to impinge on your freedom because you're not part of the principle of belonging. And that's, that's really ruthless, but I'm just saying like, that's sort of how it would work, which is why you always need both of those working and probably the principle of belonging in some ways first, which is not to say it should override the right. to freedom. Yeah. yeah. I, agree. I like philosophically, it makes a lot of sense to me. I think it's very important to have, to be part of the community, to be part of, of the, the space that you're in, the, yeah. the state that you're in and to, to contribute in some way. Yeah. Um, what I always struggle with in this discussion is 
I think economically to to apply individual property rights is very important and economically it makes a lot of sense to me to go very libertarian let's say that, that all comes from like my my austrian economics uh background let's say uh i just see no reason for those two to to clash against each other but i think there is a reason so i'd love for you to enlighten me on this uh this following point um do you have to have like an alignment between let's say, like you said, this communitarian thinking, does it have to align with what's happening on the ground with the rules that are being made? Or can you actually have like libertarian, you know, economics rules and stuff like that, but still like, is there a way for that not to feed back or do you have to have a sort of alignment? Like, I think, you know what I'm, what I'm, what I'm alluding to. It it sounds like alignment in some ways is necessary, but it's very difficult to, continuously check without then you know um actually crossing boundaries in terms yeah. of freedom no exactly i because that, that's exactly the point that i'm always afraid of yeah. um, and that's why i always tend, tend to think like you know i i don't i don't know who actually said this i think it was taleb who said it first but i've heard shapiro say it as well where he's like, okay, like I just said, in my house, I'm a communist. In my village, I'm a socialist. In my city, um, I'm conservative. And in my country, I'm, I'm like... Libertarian, yeah. Yeah. Um, see, that does make a lot of sense to me. But yeah. I don't think you need to actually legislate that socialism in there. <laughs> well, we, we, we also just need to be aware of the fact that many of these thinkers are really American. So, like, they yeah. live in which country which like to me it makes a lot of sense that you like in that country that you wouldn't want to be ruled by you know the central government in that country if your country is so big that people in the culture like differ so tremendously in such a way you know um whereas in you know we live in the netherlands that's uh, for people who don't know that's about 17 million people i think so it's really something that you can imagine uh, having this alignment yeah Uh, i know what you mean I, I want to maybe share one idea by Rousseau, who is actually like Rousseau is in some ways very dangerous because he is in some ways the forefathers of totalitarianism. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I'm good. like so, for instance, Marx was a huge fan of Rousseau. Um, at the same time, and, and Rousseau was also a despicable individual because you know he put his children in wedlock and kind of like yeah, it's anyways. Um, what I should say about his ideas that are nonetheless inspiring is that he really vouched for a direct democracy. So he was like, okay, I think you should conceive of the people in some ways as um, as a collective. So it's a collective unity and they should constantly sort of vote together on what they deem to be important. So kind of what kind of law they should have for themselves. And then after they voted for that law and then someone doesn't agree to that law, then actually, and that's, this is, these are directly his words, they shall force him to be free. So that's kind of like, you know, that's obviously purposefully kind of, uh, I should say it's provocative in some ways because like, okay, forced to be free, that doesn't sound very free to me. But you can see where this is also very much positive freedom. It's like, well, we all agree together on these principles. So therefore we're going to have laws in place that are going to make sure these principles are upheld. And then if someone decides not to want that, you know, like then you're going to be punished for that. And it's kind of like, in the same thing to to think of yourself and this maybe helps it with the sort of the Pajot connection always makes the 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 leap from like your own individual person to a kind of a collective is like you know maybe you 
are gonna be on a diet and it's like and that's sort of what you as a collective have decided and then maybe if at some point you know you you cheat you're free to tell yourself like okay well you know i'm, I'm gonna punish myself for this in some ways like ah, maybe okay after. yeah yeah i'm drawing a connection very quickly because right now for example when you speak about the body you yeah. assume the body to be a collective so even though there's a lot of individual parts to me yeah. uh, there's something that unifies me and gives me identity which is lucas i'd say and i guess what the libertarians would say to all of this is that you can't do that on a societal scale <laughs> and they find it very dangerous so yeah. the person i'm speaking to on tuesday he's a proponent of volunteerism and one aspect of volunteerism is that it's very important to look at society not as one blob of people but to take the individual um, and because say we say we all have free will let's say um it's not the same it, it just doesn't work the same as as let's say a, a body does because even though my atoms and, and you know my liver may have one idea and my heart may have another um i am the tyrannical ruler well <laughs> i'm the ruler over it and i can do whatever i want with it to my own detriment and to my own benefit let's say so i guess that would be the response to that uh, so like it's it's kind of interesting. So like I do definitely agree in some ways. So it's it's more <laughs> it's it's simpler to be aligned individually than it is collectively for sure. Um, that said, you know, like we are post Freud and post Jung. You know, we're not the masters in our own house. So that means that we've also concluded that we're not actually you know we're not actually sure if it's this rational ego kind of you know controlling everything or if it's more like our irrational passions so we also need to work very carefully about aligning that and yeah. i think in some ways you can just think like okay maybe the more you complexify uh, or yeah something um so the more people you add the more complex that will become but that's not to say it's impossible it's just to say that yes it will be more complex because there's even more personalities and at the same time ideally you get a type of opponent processing and mm -hmm. it's very possible that actually you within you as an individual your opponent processing doesn't work very well like so let's say you know we're all prone to like confirmation bias and all that but then if we work like in a democracy then our you know the fact that i'm prone to like have confirmation bias on this item and you have it on that item but together you know we can actually integrate towards a, a whole and in that sense you know maybe we are a little bit more and I think Jonathan Haidt actually talks about this, but we have aspects of like the bee, the hive mind kind of in us. Yeah. Um, and we should not disregard that so easily as some of the libertarians do, even though I do agree, like it seems okay. a bit more simple for the yeah. individual. How do we, how do we get back to something like that? Because I, it sounds like a very, mm -hmm. I don't want to say romantic because that's blasphemous to say on these channels, but it sounds like a very good idea to me, the opponent processing. It's just that nowadays, I feel that now we spoke about memetics, we're almost in a negative mimesis in terms of what, what we're doing. So if one political party does this, the other does the exact opposite. And ideally that works more in a opponent processing type of way, a more harmonic way. Do you have any idea how you get back to something like that, especially now with social media, polarization, all these things? Um, I think we need to have bigger discussions on collective identity in a very serious way and we don't and that's so i'm not sure if you've been following um what's his name it's uh Gordon Hall. 
no, 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 no. The 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 writer who was also on it's it's Craig something who was also on the Exodus panel. Uh, I'm not sure. Okay. I, I'm sure I would know if you tell me, but he was a student of Peterson's, and then yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I know what you mean the, the, the left, yeah, okay. the left guy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so he's he's a, he's a left winger, uh, and I'm actually kind of a fan of his. So like recently, I had an interview with Paul Vanderklei, or Paul Vanderklei interviewed him, and it was a really good interview, I'd say. And then you can see that he is also like we're not talking enough about the large strokes of things that we actually do agree on. And also, you know, that in most of these issues, there's a huge majority that agrees on some fundamental matters. We zoom in, in terms of news items on stuff that we are very divided on. So therefore, you know, we highlight issues such as mandatory vaccination or like um, abortion or the, the climate, like, but but in the, in the extreme sense, like, you know, it's completely man-made and the world will collapse soon, or it's like, well, none of it is man-made and it like, it's all fine. Like we have no role to play in this kind of, and you have the, these oppositions, which make it seem like we're very divided, but that's also because that's just kind of what sells algorithmically at the moment. Yeah. So it works yeah. very well to sort of, you know, get the votes that way because like, yeah, I'm going to position myself on this side of the debate. So my point is we should work much more carefully about the collective identity and really think about what does unify us and not like, you know, what do people in the rich cities want us to unify ourselves, you know? Yeah, exactly. Like have a, a, a really good conversation with all facets of society and really think of like what where is our common unity? And I think from that on, like if we agree on some fundamentals, which at the moment I agree with you, like we do not seem to do that, or at least we're not consciously aware of which fundamentals those should be. Uh, yes, we're definitely uh, doomed to some <laughs> terrible consequences. Okay. But I, yeah, and that's yeah. an overarching religious identity. It could even be a national identity, even though people okay. don't like it. But yeah, no, I don't know. Just something saying. you just, you want, you want to unite in something for sure. It's it's funny when we were when the World Cup is on like the women's World Cup final was just now. Yeah. You see how important actually to some people the national identity is. Yeah. It's it's yeah. really wild to see, especially um during the men's world cup last year, I think you saw like people coming in with flags and stuff. And then during the year they just they talk complete trash about their own countries. Which <laughs> is interesting, right? Yeah, it's it's super interesting. But really, I think if you disconnect from, from the internet for a little bit, you'll notice in action how much people actually agree on. Mm -hmm. Like, it's really wild. Um, so I work in the World Trade Center over here, and I'm a receptionist host there. And I speak to so many people there a day, and you just see so much overlap, even people from different cultures. Like, we don't realize how much we have in common simply because, like you say, it's never... <laughs> in the highlights because people don't really like to spread good news or it's something that's already ingrained in our, in our systems. And I think one part of it, like you said, the algorithm, like, what does it select on? You know, it, it really selects on sensational things. It selects on, on loss. It selects on anger, outrage. And so I think a big part of that, the movement back to harmony will be either to learn how to deal with the algorithms or to somehow get them to work in our favor. But I know very few people who actually are able to do that. Like most people are completely held hostage by, by their phones and Instagram and, and stuff like this. I just tend to think with technology, like the cat is out of the bag. You can, you can ban TikTok and people will go on Instagram. You can ban Instagram or, you know? Yeah. The question, like you're kind of, I think, 
many of us in this little corner are hesitant, like, does it just have to run its course and then we'll see where it goes? Or is it like, no, we need to make people aware of the fact that we need to start a culture and steal the culture in a way in which we can sort of uh, try to alter this course a little bit? Or are we like, well, if we, because maybe if we let it run its course, it will actually destroy the world and humanity. Yeah. <laughs> like it's very it's it's a it's a tough cookie for sure it's a it's a very tough cookie but i'm seeing like i'm seeing Peugeot and Berveke take on a lot of this responsibility already of saying like okay actually ai this is a very big deal and because we're in early stages we have a lot of well not maybe not a lot but we have agency in steering that wheel the yeah. right way um i think i think that was very so the two of them together, like them combining their arguments was very interesting because at the start, I think Peugeot was a little bit more skeptical really towards AI because it was like, you know, it's still led by human interest. And in some way that's true. But, you know, so even if, and I, th I think, you know, Bernardo Castro too, like there's good philosophical arguments to be made that actually these machines will never be conscious in the way, same way that human beings are. At the same time, you know, they'll, they might have a type of agency that's nonetheless relevant to consider you oh, know yeah. agency could be like and then indeed and and that's what i really admired about john's argument so Praveki's argument is that he really tried to emphasize like okay you know if we somehow cultivate their love of wisdom philosophy you know in some ways then you know that will actually be a project that will either enlighten us, you know, or enlighten us that they're not able to do it. So therefore we are enlightened, we are a privileged position, or they'll be enlightened and they can teach us, you know, but because it's wisdom, you know, they won't then destroy us because that wouldn't be wise. And it's kind of like very, very interesting. And then Peugeot said like, yeah, because all the things that they're trained to do now have awful byproducts. Like you can kind of tell that, you know, part of this focus on sort of rhetoric, on, um, on lying and de deceiving on political correctness in some ways, but then on sort of sex in other ways, because you have the sex robot revolution also coming up. That is awful byproducts that we don't want to know about. Know about. But what is the worst by the, the bad byproduct of teaching someone about wisdom? It's like very little. It's very difficult to see yeah. how cultivating wisdom has a negative byproduct. You know, so I yeah. think it's wonderful. I think that's a great idea, for yeah. sure. I just feel like. <laughs> Like 35%, no, maybe, I don't know what the percentage is, but like 35 or 45% or even 60, don't quote me on this, is pornography, the, the traffic of, of internet. So it's yeah. like, <laughs> we yeah. come, come marching in with our wis wisdom, you know, like there's a it's, lot of work to be done for sure. It's, it's almost like, you know, again, so we were just talking about Freud and the rational ego first, like the passions. It's almost like on a collective scale, you know, and it's completely decentralized because the internet we're the same. It's like, you know, we have this huge passion, like 60% pornography kind of traffic going on. But then, you know, we also have discussions and then we feel like we're in control, but maybe not. Maybe in some ways we're being ruled by, you know, our lower passions in some ways. Yeah. It's a good way of describing it, actually, what, what AI caters to, our lower our lower passions. So there there are actually parts of ourselves that are, that are quite bad or evil. Uh, not going to regurgitate the Solzhenitsyn line of the good and evil, <laughs> but um, yeah. So I think that's really what they pull out, and focusing on the exact opposite of that, cultivating the, these virtues. I think it is also a movement that's going on, and 
going away from from social media and all these things is also a movement that I see popping up. So I am, I am that it gives me a lot of courage. Let's say, like with every movement, there's its counter movement. Yeah. Um, I would just hope that, like we're speaking about these these extreme polarities, I would hope to stop going from here to here and more like center, you know, center a bit more. And I think, you know, oftentimes when you discuss all these questions, the answer is usually like do what you can in your own community, in your own place. Um, yeah, I mean, just like you really try to consider this from, a, how should I say it, like a, an ahistorical or no, at least like um, from just a larger bird's eye view. Yeah, yeah. Like you're not a part of it or something. Yeah, like or let, let's say, you know, um let's just assume for the sake of argument that in a thousand years you know there'll be historians and they'll be like whoa and at the start of the you know 21st century the internet came about and actually some of the people assumed that it was possible to just like go centering but obviously the internet when it first came about it led to like yeah. all these huge like it just seems impossible because the internet is still like so yeah i don't know it's so new still it's so yeah that, and it has such a big influence on how we conduct ourselves that it seems very difficult just from that you know historical timeline perspective that we really are able to kind of center soon unfortunately um, a lot of people i don't know if if they if they agree on the arguments but a lot of people seem to think that it's going to get worse before it gets better but that it will get better that's yeah. what I hear from the from the symbolism guys. It's what I hear from the Bitcoin bros. Um, so yeah, I think that's kind of what we're preparing for now. But same time with times of crises, this is where goodness comes out the most. Um, yeah. So in the, in that sense, it's it's not all bad. You know what's going to happen. No, it's like and 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 you know like so if it's it's obviously a really nice idea like the you know the city of God and and light everywhere and uh but at the same time you know how valuable like light can be in the darkness it's it's, it's amazing mm -hmm. that's I'm going through a, gonna go through an era, era an era of darkness probably we're going through it maybe in some ways um but yeah have, you know some beams of light some just little sparks there For that's sure. something you can be that's For amazing sure. you try to cultivate your character accordingly um, mm. And your character inside a community, etc. Yeah. yeah, and it's what you what you've been working on as well. I mean, we're talking about volunteerism. Um, you recently volunteered on a on a kids camp. Yes. It's not what it sounds like, guys. It's not what it sounds like. It's actually good stuff. It's doing. Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, how does it feel to actually do something with full volition? That's like so. I mean, it's geared towards such goodness. I've heard you speak about it a little bit. I don't know if you're comfortable with speaking yeah. about it, but I think you provide such a good example of where you can take this 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 thing this human connection this the, the 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 virtues that we can cultivate how is that for you well i should i should first say that it's it's much more difficult for me than it is for some people so you can tell that some people they just have this i don't know this attitude this character where it's 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 so natural to them that they're giving their lives to this movement that's larger to larger than them and that is not based on hating individuals, but actually based on bringing individuals together in the name of a larger purpose in some ways, you know. And for some people that comes supernaturally. And for me, that's all it's difficult because I'm, uh, well, I'm in my head a lot. So I, 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 which also means that I'm very 
uh, I can be introverted, I can be introspective in that way. And that makes it sometimes difficult for me to fully give myself to like a community, to like the outside world, because I need moments to like reflect and go to myself because that's much, that's how I work. That's just not much more natural to me. But the nice thing is that when I do conduct myself in such a way that I can give myself to a community, even if it's like for a week, which is what the camp was, um, I noticed that like I get those glimmers of like, oh, this is what I'm here for this but not just me it's like this is what we are here for like this is what people are here to do for like it's it's and, and i can't really explain it to you but i just know that it's like to uh in some ways really be part of a bigger community and not just in a way that it provides stuff for you but that you provide something for it that you play a role in it you have a part to play but also not in such a way that you completely forget yourself but that you work together in a team that also has checkups on you it's like how are you doing amongst this still uh and you can just kind of tell like that works very well together and at the same time there's something to be said that specifically something like a summer camp it's like um what do you call it almost like a ritual experience like you really you 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 leave the known world and you go to the unknown world of the summer camp for a week and it's completely different and especially for you know those teenagers who go to such camps like for them it's also interested from interesting from like a, a love interest perspective for instance because you know they're obviously teenagers yeah lots of drama and stuff yeah um and then they return and then they have to integrate what they cultivated during that week. But the mm. same goes for the staff members like myself. Like we have to integrate like, okay, yes, what does it feel like to actually constantly be, you know, present uh, and, but not present in the, not present in the individualistic meditations. Yeah. It's okay. Very but it should scale outside of that. Yes. I think that's a very important point because before you said like, this is what we're made to do. Yeah. in many ways it's a large claim because a lot of people want, don't want to acknowledge that we're actually made to do things mm -hmm. but you know you speak about individuality so that's the multiplicity um, but you need unity and those are things that i think are also opposed to each other but you yeah. really need both and i think the beauty of of human beings is that even when you're inside of a collective let's say it's not just this blob that that some people theorize about it's really all these beautiful yeah. um, individuals within that. And there's so much depth in one of those people, but there's, there's even more beauty when you put it all, yeah. put it all together. So I think that's uh... it's also like, you know, it's so interesting because the more you spend with such a group, like the more time you spend with such a group, the more you learn to know everyone in their difference and in their sort of, you know, similarities. Yeah. And, and, but, but so that's kind of crazy because you'd think that the more you learn that they're all different, that there's less unity or the more you learn that actually, you know, they're more alike, there's less difference, but actually both increase in. And that's, by the way, the reciprocal opening that someone like Fraveki talks about, you know, is like in a relationship with someone, you can both reciprocally open in a way that makes you more like united, but at the yeah. same time preserves your difference far more than if you would just be sort of this small projection of you know like of this other person's rational ego and i don't do not mean rational with a capital r but you know in a kind of 20 man i understand everything you're saying i just feel bad for the people that have never watched for vaki because like yeah i know, I know. It, it's a lot to explain that guy to to people um yeah <laughs> okay and that, that, that's his problem and he knows it yeah yeah, I'm excited to, to speak to him about it. Okay, well, I have, a, I have a long list of questions, so I'm just going to pick one that, that like stands out to me. 
Mm-hmm. Um, how do you actually get wiser? Mm. Yourself, maybe first. Like, do you have do you have things in place that that make you wiser, or not at all? Um. Well, yeah. So I, th- I think that's a good question. Like, how do you get wiser? Because if you would ask me, like, how do you get wise? It's like, well, I don't, I don't know because I'm not, <laughs> you know, like, I, I don't think, I think it's very difficult for people to uh, be wise, but it's at the same time, very, uh, there's clear pathways for us to become wiser. And well, I do it as because my vocation is uh, teaching and, and therefore also studying philosophy. So for me, it's diff- It's going to be different than it's going to be for other people. Because for me, I'm thinking about the, um, I should say it, about the arguments of all these thinkers. Uh, and not all of them are about ethics, but some of them can also be, sort of, for instance, about free will, which seems to have little to do with, or at least, well, it has a lot to do with ethics, but just the theoretical argument behind it doesn't seem to have a lot to do with it. But by learning about it in a way in which you're trying to teach it to other people, you're also cultivating wisdom in a sense, because you're thinking about, okay, how can I sort of sell this, but sell this in a way in which it rings true. Like, so therefore you first need to convince yourself, why is this true? And then you're going to think about, okay, so therefore it's also true for other people. So you have this, and that's at least how I started off with philosophy. You have this commitment to the truth, and then that can actually lead uh, transfer to goodness because you have that commitment to the truth you're less prone to lying for instance and therefore you're it's 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 easier for you to be good than for someone who doesn't have a commitment to the truth and then you know that's also going to be more difficult to be good and that's usually it's usually explained this way that you have the three transcendentals which are the true the good and the beautiful and you have them sort of across traditions and those are all sort of pathways to uh, wisdom in a certain sense or wisdom is a pathway to to the good wisdom is a pathway to the true wisdom is a pathway to the beautiful um, and we can have discussions about all three of those separately but I think that's just al- al- already very nice and then to be a bit more practical about myself like I try to uh, um, cultivate um, daily meditation it's difficult now because it's sort of the holiday season and then you're you know away with friends and then with family and i don't want to be the one outsider by myself um but that's ideally what i would like to be part of my day uh i try to sort of make prayer play a bigger part of my life again because i definitely have not been doing that uh on a frequent basis in the last few years Uh, and then i really try to uh, educate myself very like constantly on all these uh, thinkers on their ideas to really overthink them again to sometimes read a book again after uh, like you haven't read it in like a couple of years um, or re-listen to a book again which is often the case for me because I'm not that good at reading to be honest at least not not like the wrong t- the, the, the long text and that really helps me to constantly check like if I thought I knew something to really nuance it a little bit by still like by listening to it again because I'm like oh actually I made my own conclusions about theory first and now I hear the author say it again and that helps a lot because you're constantly because you're I should say it because you're confronting yourself uh, with great thinkers you know they're a great thinker I do not consider myself like a great thinker in the sense that you know someone like a Nietzsche or a Jung or a Girard is like a great thinker um to constantly confront yourself with their presence, with their words, with their 
ideas is to constantly be humiliated in the face of great greatness, but not humiliated, you know, that it's humiliating, but more that it gives you humility. You're like, okay, so I have more to learn, you know, and therefore, and that's a step to wisdom. And that's also why they say that, uh, what is it again? Like the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. It's like yep. that, that to be aware of something that is, you know, you can also interpret that saying differently, but to be aware of something um, larger than you, be it certain facets of truth, of beauty, of goodness, um, that can be unified in your love of God, but it yeah. can also be unified in a philosophical tendency or in a different spiritual tradition. Um, that helps to constantly bring you a sense of humility that will therefore further your sense of wisdom because you don't want to be humiliated. Like you don't get energy from being like, oh, I'm so small and that makes me feel good. Like, no, no, you want to grow, but you're also constantly aware that you can never stop growing and yet you constantly feel the improvement. So, and obviously like to not do this by yourself, to have conversations with other people, because otherwise, you know, you might end up super arrogant about what you think is right, but actually challenge yourself with other people. Uh, and also cultivate and that's maybe the most difficult thing for someone like me you know like i tend to think a lot tend to think in arguments and rationalistically but i also really? need to cultivate my, <laughs> my my more uh my my sensitive side my aesthetic side yeah. so there's parts of me that i sometimes need to really think about okay if i'm going to be with other people i should not try to win a debate i should just be curious about who they are you know yeah that's that's also a way to cultivate wisdom that it's not just about who's going to have the better argument because that's actually super selfish, narcissistic, you know, so that, so also keep a check on that. Mm. Yeah. Because I was thinking while you were speaking, you were mentioning all these thinkers and I'm like, maybe the thinking is a lot right now, you know, because you're such like the, the human, the human being is such a, it's so complex. Like you have your brain, you have your thoughts, mm -hmm. but you also have love, you have emotional intelligence, you have, you have all these things. So in many, in many ways, when I think about Nietzsche, who I don't know a lot about, and same with, with Jung, um, like some don't consider them great at all, if you know what I mean. And I, I don't want to like, I, I think they're thinking-wise, they're great, of course. Mm -hmm. um, but but it, many it, would say that they, sorry? No, many would say that they fell prey to, to, to hubris or... Mm. To, to thinking so much of their theories and of their and of their thoughts that they actually maybe lost track of wisdom in in many ways um, yeah yeah I think embody embodied practices definitely help a lot well it's also like to say like I just want to briefly comment on what you just said it's like I do agree with both of them that you know I do not want to idolize either one and they definitely have said, things that i disagree with but it's too easy to be like oh you know so there i can't praise them all the way so therefore i'm gonna leave them behind in some sense because then that actually can lead to more arrogance on your part because you're like so i'm better than you i'm better than nietzsche because i'm not ending up where they're ending up it's like well yeah. okay but they might be like great in so many aspects that you haven't cultivated yet so think about really what can you take from these thinkers yeah. before you then say okay now it's time to move on like don't shove them aside like just at the start like and that's also why I, I will always keep an interest in them because they have had such an influence that is difficult to figure out in your own lifetime like you really need to think about okay why are was their influence so big what was it about their ideas their words their aura their presence that was so influential and 
I don't think I'll ever achieve that. And maybe like for better or worse, like it's not that I want to sort of become an influential person in that sense, maybe. Um, but I'm just saying like yeah. you have something to learn, even if they do not end up great in the, you know, perfect sense, like flawless kind of great sense. Yeah. I think you explained yourself very well. I think the way you approach it as well, I think you said that you're looking at, at them and their, and their ideas and the things that they got right and the things, you know, because even though they might not be perfect human beings in those ways, they excelled very well. And if you put your ideas next to theirs, that is a good way to, to humble yourself for sure. So yeah, I completely and, agree. And I would also say like, you know, I, I like, so I'm into uh, lots of fiction. So I like, uh, I, I also like watching like a lot of TV shows about, uh, so for instance, the Sopranos, or Breaking Bad, and these are all essentially about immoral characters at the center of it. And we're all sort of drawn to this in some sense, at least like, I'm just going to say that on the basis of like that these are very popular shows uh, and they're known to be like among the best TV shows ever. And it's kind of interesting because they're clearly immoral people. So it shows like, okay, well, maybe we're, it's, we're also, we're partly fascinated by the capacity for evil, but we might also be inspired by their capacity to twist the good in them for evil ends, you know? So therefore, what can we learn from how they conduct themselves and then actually subvert that and, you know, use it for good ends? So, you know, that's also how you learn. Yeah. yeah no, I think that's great. It's a good point, actually. I never thought about that. I think it's what we're doing now a lot as well. We're so fascinated by people that are just like, nope, I don't, <laughs> I don't think I have to live like that or like this. And we follow them like they're the most important people on the planet. Because in many ways, it's an experiment what they're doing. It's like, how are they going to end up? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's, also yeah. About, that, that's one reason why I sometimes get a bit annoyed by comments by someone like Jordan Peterson or Sam Harris about very popular individuals. So like Peterson will do it about, uh, uh, I don't know, Trudeau, something like that. And then uh, Sam Harris will do it about Trump. And it's like, Okay, but now you're just pretending like they're kind of almost pure evil without sort of any, you know, and, and, and understand why they do it in that way. But I'm just saying like, then you're just pretending like, oh, it's so obvious that these are bad people. Why are we still following them? It's like, well, maybe also really try to steal men, why they've been so influential to so many people and then consider the defects. But sometimes these discussions get so one-sided that there's very little good left to consider in these large figures. Yeah. but it's just an aside comment yeah and i mean again they're they're individuals so mm -hmm. if we if we take them to have free will and if we take them to have evil and good in their hearts then then there's no reason for for us to portray them as demons and doing that actually is going to be to our own detriment mm -hmm. so yeah i completely agree i uh i had a bit of a larger question <laughs> it goes back to me listening to like this uh, theories of everything mm episode with Gustrup and Chris Langen, the guy with the highest IQ. Measure. One of some very, very dangerous um, ideas, by the way, but let's keep that aside. I think Kurt asked them if love was fundamental to the universe and both of them said, no, love. I have an intuition that, that somehow love is absolutely fundamental to reality, to to the world at large and to us. Uh, what do you think about this question? Um, it's a great question. It's uh, the question how, how deep love really goes. And in some sense, I think it goes 
incredibly deep. I just first want to ask you, what did Bernardo Castro say about that? Because I think if like, I like his theory, I'm not like 100% convinced by it, but I think it's persuasive, uh, his metaphysical idealism. And I actually can think of a clear place of love in that yeah. theory. I'm just curious, like, what did he say? Why did he say no? There's a funny thing about Castro because for those of you who aren't familiar, his basic idea uh, maps onto metaphysical idealism, which is about reality being completely in mind, let's say mental. Okay. I think I think I say that not, correctly. Not, not in your or my mind. No. Mind as We're in all in one collective yeah. mind, let's say. And so he doesn't have a problem with, with God either. But <laughs> the funny thing about him is that even though he can um, make up this theory or at least align himself with this theory, he doesn't have anything else to say about it. Like you said this to me recently, like Gustav does not have an ontology. So he has nothing that informs him actually about this mind. Um, there's nothing that tells him if it's a moral mind or what whatnot. I've heard him say something like that before. And yeah. so I think his, his or, answer... Or, or at least I should say like he's an ontological monist. So he believes it's mad. It, it's, uh, I should say like... It's just mental. It's just ide idealist. So like, there's only the mental substance, and everything yeah. is that. Where someone like Wolfgang Schmidt is a, uh, he's not a mental. Uh, I don't think he's an ontological monist. He believes in different levels of reality. You know, like yeah, and that's not the same with Custer. But sorry, yes, to go back to you. Yeah, thank you, thank you for adding that. It's very valuable, I think, because also if you if you have this this monism and if you don't have the levels of reality. I don't think it informs you a lot about about the ethics of it all, you know, about what is good, what is bad, what is love, what is, you know. So more more to say that I don't really see a lot of telos there, and so I think his answer was quite short, to be honest. Both of them was quite short. Like I, there, there's nothing scientifically that indicates to me something like this, and well, I don't. I, yeah, I just want to say like so. I know that uh, in Custer's theory, we're going to like just very briefly summarize it. It's just to say that we are all like, just like you can have one individual uh, patient case uh, who has uh, multiple uh, personality disorder or dissociative identity disorder, I think it's what it's referred to today. Um, so they might have multiple alter egos that sometimes are dominant. In that same way, we can all collectively exist in one mind mind at large that's what it's referred to and we are all our alter egos of it so therefore it's working through us but only in this very dissociated alter ego sense and therefore i think love seems to have a very central place because you know he really believes that you know us as humanity like we should unite and we should <laughs> be there for one another because then we're in harmony so the awful thing about these patients is not so much that they have dissociated identity disorder um, that that's not necessarily a disorder by itself. It becomes really a disorder when there's, you know, a conflict between the different alter egos, you know, which there often is. And that's also the case in our world from his perspective is like, we're in constant conflict. We think, you know, that I am my separate I and that I exist outside of an individual who I might dislike. And I forget to realize like, wait, actually you and I are part of the same divine spark and therefore and that's where i think love comes in we should love one another and live harmonically like together you know uh, as opposed to indeed thinking like no i'm separate and i want to stay separate because that will actually continue this uh, dissociative identity alter identity alter ego um condition 
And therefore, I think there's a place of love there. But we can also continue a bit more <laughs> on what I would say outside of that. But I'm not sure. Yeah, you... no, but it makes sense. It makes sense. It's also giving identity in a way, you know, like yeah. if you're talking about um, agape, meaning like unconditional love very briefly. Uh, if that if that's giving identity, realizing that someone else is real. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, for sure. But I think the the question because it was like is love fundamental like where does it all come from like i think yeah. that that that's why he didn't he didn't speak about it in this way um mm -hmm. but i do have some ideas about that and i was wondering if you had any well i think like what you just said is, is wonderful like i i know that it was iris murdoch who said that like you know love is the very painful realization that something other than you is real um and it's a i think it's a beautiful quote and i think you just said something that was very similar like that yeah, yeah i think it's i think it's hers i mean i got it from Faveki, but he yeah so i think he probably got it from her and she seems to have gotten it from simone Weil, but we can talk about that later um and she uh like i i really like that idea because it seems that love therefore is very fundamental because otherwise we just stay sort of in our egos and we live on our own projections so it's like so you are not actually lucas like you are just kind of my little brother who I can sort of, you know, manipulate at will because you do not have a complexity of yourself. This is something great for a clip channel at some point if someone's yeah, sounds good. <laughs> um, but, you know, and therefore I can sort of, you know, bend you to my will. And therefore it's all about, you know, how does the world serve me and my narrow projections of what the world is like. But if you actually love something deeply, you have to acknowledge its complexity because you're not just like loving it in the sense like, you know, oh, I love this pizza. I want to eat the pizza. It's instrumental. Like, yeah, exactly. Like It's not just the instrumental use. It's indeed like the much more imminent consideration of someone as this separate entity by which you become one. And that's again, like the, pre the preservation of difference and unity in um uh, in that connection between the two of you and that's why i think love has a very fundamental uh position in the universe because you know you can also say i think i think our uh, dad does it in, in this way like he thinks you know love is the central motivating force behind evolution because you get this um uh, sex difference at some point and obviously you you need this you know this love to then connect people again or connect individuals like amongst all species to then start breeding again and actually preserve life so you can just say like in that simple sense but also just from a a more mm, experiential viewpoint is like we want to experience the world as real we do not want to experience it as something that is just our own projections because then we end up being solipsist and we live in our own head and we end up depressed but if we think of the world and the people in it and the animals in it and the things in it you know the objects in it the plants in it and as real as like existing outside ourselves we have to understand its complexity and really while we're understanding it understanding ourselves better because of it because we're not just you know sort of i should say just kind of like blindly accepting it as our projection like we're learning like oh i was projecting this onto you but you're much more complex so now i'm learning that i should project onto you so then what do i think of you you know so you also become more complex yourself and that seems to be very <laughs> essential about keeping reality going so it seems like that love is so much bigger or larger than the entities that end up serving it i really think that love is like this bigger force that then you know like just 
in this principality sense, but it's it's larger than a principality because it's not just one acting force that is sort of here and then not there. It's like it's always there, and it can even be love oriented in perverse ways, but love oriented in uh and like towards the true, the good, and the beautiful. And yeah. that's all love is related to the good, probably most of all. Um, you know, but in love we can see truth because we see, we see things as they truly are, and if we see them as they truly are, they are they show their beauty to us. You know, so mm. it's all related in this way. So yes, in that sense, I do believe so. But I do not have a scientific answer for you in the same way maybe our dad does or other scientists would. Yeah. Is what uh is God love? Um, yeah. Cool. <laughs> I, I i i cannot elaborate but like um if god exists and god is love okay that's good that's yeah. good yeah that's mostly what it, what informs me to be honest i can go very deep but the question is, is god just love you know like is god reducible to love and that's is, that's is love something to be reduced well that yeah that's again so those are the difficult questions that I do not have an answer to. <laughs> but it's like, for, for me, that's, I don't know if it's the highest thing, but I think so. Like, it's, it's the hardest thing to reduce. It's the most uh, irreducible wholeness there is, let's say. Well, it's really like, so I, I, I want to be charitable to, um, to the other world religions in some ways, and then see like, okay, I genuinely think like, this is what Wolfgang talks about as well wolfgang smith uh you know there is a central difference between christianity and, and vedism for instance and you really do think that love seems to be more central to christianity uh as opposed to it is like like to to to, to vedism for instance and you can kind of tell that they really end up with different conclusions but really based on the same problem so with indeed you know we are uh we're separated like you can really think of it in the Bernardo Castro way you know like we are separated alter egos individuals and therefore we should really uh, acknowledge that suffering that is caused by our separation and be united again in love and that's how we'll experience God and we'll unify ourselves with God again um, but you can also do the other ways like realize that you're separate and therefore sort of more acknowledge that you know we that we should not be too attached to our earthly existence and also properly detach from it in some ways because if we attach it too much our separation will only increase but that has a little bit less to do with the agape sense of love that we find in christianity so because i want to be charitable i want to say like well maybe this is actually a genuine answer but obviously we're from a christian background so i see like how that is more persuasive to us yeah yeah and i'm also not sure i'm actually gonna ask for vicky this i think if the idea that uh, God is love or God is agape, if that is a discovery or if that is in some way a creation or if that comes with with Christ coming into the picture, because there are different unions with God if you follow Wolfgang. And he says there there, there is no, no thing like Christianity is better than, than Vedicism or something like this. But they're fundamentally different in that in Christianity, the identity is preserved. And for identity to be preserved, there's love because it's acknowledging that yeah. someone else is more real than you. Whereas if you unite with God in the nirvanic way, in the Vedic way, yeah. you completely unite and you lose yourself mm -hmm. and you merge with God, let's say. So yeah. maybe 
that's not the same as agape if agape is is identity making yeah it preserves difference which is also why and that's sort of the that's why it protects the individual a little bit better so yeah. you know, in our democratic just to go back to the start of the conversation in our democratic and political traditions the power of christianity was really to preserve the individual because we, we acknowledge that mm. everyone personhood that must be preserved. yeah but you know within the community but indeed again and that's sort of it's really interesting how these are totally separate questions but they all end up uh, connecting yeah yeah i think that's beautiful i think it's good i wasn't sure if they would but i just i want to pick out the questions i most want to ask um so funny ones in there as well well i wanted to ask a last question because i've been listening to the uh, awakening from the meaning crisis series for the third time and humble brag <laughs> yeah i mean it's not really a brag at this it was the same with the wolf like i listened so many times it's not it's more that i don't get it guys that's why i listen so much <laughs> but <laughs> you must do it, yeah. yeah so something really central in this series it's Reveki series by the way in which he tries to get us to awaken from the meaning crisis say so he tries to provide good answers to how you can get meaning back into your lives and he really keeps hammering on the, the idea of creating a religion that is not a religion, or at least he's not creating it, but he is trying to contribute to it and trying to point us to it and trying to help us get there. And he's referring to an ecology of practices that, that, that in many ways serves the function that religion used to serve, um, used to be, sorry, losing yeah. my, uh, um, but isn't exactly that. So he's trying to, avoid that now there's a lot of thinkers in this corner that would be like no that's absolutely not what we're supposed to be doing um it's almost a, a very bad thing to do mm -hmm. how do you feel about that do you think that this movement that that Fervaki is in many ways a part of do you think it it can scale on a on a large scale and do you think it should do you think it's a good thing um well i think it's a it's a wonderful, amazing, great thing. I want to say that first of all, and that's because I think it's great for this time in which, you know, we find it very difficult to understand what the value of religion actually is. Uh, and therefore we also end up making projections about it and be like, okay, so this is my projection of what religion is. I don't like that projection. So therefore I conclude, I do not like religion, but we do not under understand what religion really is. And Verveke does a great way of just attacking this from like so many different perspectives that you're like, whoa, oh my God, okay. <laughs> Quite literally, like religion is so much more complex than I thought it was. And therefore it has so much more value. And actually, even if I'm if if even if I'm not religious, I now have to acknowledge how much religious thinking has influenced my entire worldview. Um so that's very useful. And then I, that's why I think in this time it will certainly scale because at least in the West in which this is taking on, like, let's be honest, it doesn't take on outside the West at the moment for Veiki's um, project. Um, it's necessary because other people would like otherwise just kind of like, you know, stay separate as, as these kind of meditation individuals who would not be part of communities or they would be part of communities that would be, that would lean slightly narcissistically because they think they're so amazing and enlightened, you know? So, you know, and he is very good 
for those types of people to then help them become more humble, really seek for wisdom, really, you know, if they're doing more on the meditative part to really consider the contemplative dimension, if they're doing more on the contemplative dimension to really consider the meditative dimension. So I think he's fantastic for that. That said, like, obviously, like, I do not, <laughs> I find it very difficult to see how what he's doing will sort of in the current form it, it, or in anything resembling the current form um, end up being the case in a couple centuries from now or maybe maybe even a couple decades from now it's really hard to see but it's very important for this moment so that's why i appreciate it and i really love the fact that he is okay with people incorporating that in their own religious traditions and therefore it works like and that's why i much more prefer what he's been saying that he uh, like afterwards so like i think during the awakening from meaning christ he kept talking about a religion that is not a religion and he still does that sometimes but now he will often refer to it as the you know the silk road kind of you know the silk road between traditions just like neoplatonism could be that for the early islamic and christian and jewish thought you know uh in the same way maybe now also neoplatonist because it's very neoplatonist inspired obviously um maybe what he's working on here contributing to not creating but indeed certainly trying to feel uh coming up and being an active contributor to um could serve that bridge between traditions and that might at the moment be more important than the traditions themselves because people are stuck in their projections of the other traditions so therefore building bridges at the moment is more important than arguing which tradition is best at the moment but in the long run i doubt it will actually scale up Okay, thank you. What do you think? That makes a lot of sense. Like, I'm a baby. I don't know. I'm just a sponge. Just trying to listen to what the... What do you think? I'm genuinely curious. Do you think it will scale? Yeah. Well, in I well, I scale, I think so. Um, or something like it, for sure. I mean, he doesn't narrow it down, which makes it more viable, I would say. Because he refers to Rafe Kelly, who's doing something like this. He refers to circling practice. So we're really talking about an ecology of practices. So in many ways, I already see it scaling. I think the natural inclination for for people to get into communities is going to help that for sure. So scaling, I see that the only thing I'm really thinking about is whether or not it's a good thing because he keeps saying like, we have to go beyond religion and there's many reasons for why we can't go back to a, to a religion or a pseudo religious thing. I'm I'm not sure about that because, well, again, I'm a baby. So I'm just, I'm I'm trying to listen to people who I, think are very wise and some of the people that have by far impressed me the most are very much saying that we need religion uh, in fact it's the only way to get to god fully let's say and like for me personally i can i can experience god everywhere but i'm ignorant enough to say that the people that seem to me to be the wisest say that there's a lot of value in religious traditions that if we completely let go of it, it's just going to turn up in really weird ways. And so it's, it's not like something we get to choose or anything that that's kind of where I'm at right now. But honestly, listening to John these days, um, him spending time with Bishop Maximus, Jonathan Peugeot, going to these events with like a lot of Christian thinkers. I'm not sure if he holds the same views and I'm not sure if it's the long-term view being like, we can never do that again. Yeah, I don't know how he thinks about that. So again, this is another thing I'll probably ask him. I would also say that, like from the start, so the 
this the phrase a religion that is not a religion it should be really understood in that way you know it's like it's a religion that is not a religion it's a religion that is beyond religion so therefore he's not saying i want to create something that is beyond religion i want to create something that is not a religion he's saying no, i want to create a religion or not create sorry that's that's the wrong word but um i want to contribute to a religion that is not a religion so therefore he's doing that on purpose in some ways to really try to make clear there's all these problematic aspects of religion that are nonetheless necessary yeah. <laughs> or or maybe there's you know it shouldn't have these problematic aspects of religion but it also has to be a religion in some ways because it can be non-religious because people are religious so it should be a religion but it shouldn't be a, re a religion you know so he knows it's paradoxical and that's what kind of saves him in the end is that yeah. it ends up being a religion. He's like, well, yeah, I always wanted a religion. If it ends up being no religion, he's like, yeah, I always wanted to go beyond religion. So, uh, and I'm not saying he is like a sophist who is just rhetorical and, you know, he just wants to win the argument. No, he's not like that. I'm just saying like, I understand why he's leaving this open because he's waiting for a Kairos moment to really show up and therefore show us collectively what this will look like. And yeah, what a religion that is not like at least religion as we know it will look like. And that's actually where I'm, and I think you too, like we're very critical of someone like Verveke is like, he tends to use these words that are slightly polemical um, that actually end up alienating people sometimes. So if he says like, you know, I'm a non-theist, it's kind of like interesting because he means like, you know, you know, theists believe in God as a being but uh, the non-theist tradition doesn't believe in God as being, but maybe as the ground of being. But then, you know, I can still imagine someone saying, yes, yeah, so then I'm still a theist. Like, I still believe in, in God, but not God as a being, but I'm still a theist. Yeah, I had a whole conversation about this on Twitter the other day. Yeah. This, guy, this guy was like, I don't understand how non-theism is different from atheism. Yeah. And then I tried explaining to him, and I mean, I'm arguing with him, but also I don't even like the term non-theism. <laughs> I just yeah. got into this argument because indeed it, it almost, it's oxymoronic almost where it's like, yes, but you can still believe in God. So there's non-theists that believe in God, but then they're non-theists. And it just sounds, it's confusing. Yeah, uh, it's, it's and, and that's what I mean, like where he said like a religion that is not a religion or a, I'm a non-theist, like he seems to really sort of alienate. Because he wants to stay away from the appearances. He wants to stay away from the, let's say the, oh, yeah. Yeah. the false manifestations that, yeah. that seem to be occurring today the pseudo-religious yeah yeah it makes a lot of sense and 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 i do really appreciate that like you know in his conversation with bishop maximus or what he said like you know at the conference with Peugeot, he was like i'm really curious where i would have ended up if i would have been raised with jonathan's form of christianity as opposed to you know <laughs> fundamentalist christianity which obviously wasn't up to the task and i also think um because you know and this is where uh, I'm really inspired by Nietzsche and Jung, you know, like people are, people's views are profoundly personal in some ways and including his, and you can tell like he acknowledges this, like obviously as a fundamentalist um, background, which traumatized him. But in that same way, like I thought that was really beautiful actually in his conversation with Christopher Mastro Pietro about Kierkegaard, you could tell that he was kind of like, well, maybe one reason why I prefer Socrates over Christ as a figure and that's also he doesn't say christ he says jesus of nazareth um maybe it's because you know i kind of prefer the less the the way of life in which less suffering is involved because he's very traumatized by 
a lifestyle that seems to, you know, really like suffering is good. Suffering is good. We should suffer, you know, and therefore, oh, you're uh, a horny teenager. Well, that's bad. That's bad. You shouldn't masturbate. You know, like it's, it's all kind of like that super judgment about, no, you shouldn't. You should feel guilty about this. You should, you should feel guilty about this. And I think therefore he leaves that suffering behind him because it's so traumatizing for him. And he's much more interested in those other aspects of life. And that's why I think Colonel West once said, and he stole it from someone else, maybe it was from Thomas More, I think, that, uh, you know, one of the fundamental questions in the you know, sort of our Western <laughs> uh, spiritual ethos is like, why does, uh, at least in the, in the synoptic, um, in the synoptic, what do you call it, like gospels, Jesus never laughs. And why does Socrates never cry? And that's a very interesting th thing to think about. And I think Verveke wants not to cry. He wants to laugh and to have insight. And, you know, other people, you know, including ourselves, we're also comfortable with being profoundly sad and being profoundly mournful and, and uh, how should I say it, like really identifying ourselves with suffering and that's also why for some people peterson is more interesting because he's like well suffering all the way man like suffering is part of life and how are you going to deal with that suffering but for is much less about that like he obviously acknowledges it because it's a meaning crisis so therefore it's filled with suffering but for him it's really like think mentally think clearly really meditate a lot so therefore you know that you're able to think clearly about this which is much less about like oh you know just push through because then even though you'll suffer you'll experience meaning no he's he's a lot less about that suffering dimension but jesus was you know so i'm just saying that's also one of the things that colors his conclusions being less prone to religion and less in and more interested in this more philosophical less emotional approach if that yeah. makes sense no that makes a lot of sense i really like how you I think you're able to really well like zoom out of this of this uh, this little corner and seeing actually where these thinkers lie in these categories that you present. I think that I never really thought about that a lot. Um, Maybe with... you disagree, you know? You yeah, can... yeah, but that's interesting. But like, it's it's just fun to see the playing field like abstractly in front of me. Maybe it's not yeah. completely right, but it's at least like plausible. So uh, nice. yeah, that's it. That's all the time I have today. I really enjoyed the. Uh, going through these questions with you i've probably like 15 more so we'll just keep them for later and uh <laughs> that's good that's good and i was also i was very glad to hear more from your side this time because i know it started off more as an sort of an autobiography kind of last time but yeah. uh, i'm really enjoying sort of having your perspectives on this as well because uh as uh i'm sure many people of your channel will know like you're a great thinker and a great and a great I should say a great wanderer in maybe both senses of the word, you know, like uh, wandering and wandering. Uh, and I think you do both in a in a very nice harmonic fashion. And that's why you're such a great interviewer. But also, you know, you're able to present ideas of your own very well. So and that's, that's uh, like, and I've said this before, like, OK, I, I don't want to spoil anything, but uh, Lucas indeed has an upcoming uh, episode with Karen, which goes more in depth on Wolfgang Schmidt. And I think Lucas' uh, explanation of Wolfgang Smith's ideas is the best I've heard so far. And I've, <laughs> I've also listened to Wolfgang Smith's own explanation of his ideas and other people's explanation of Wolfgang Smith's ideas. So uh, it's amazing how well you're able to integrate it. And then it might be worth indeed listening to some of these things <laughs> three times in a row because you're so well articulating it. Then. Thank so, you. I really yeah. appreciate it. Thank you to the 10 people watching. You're the best. <laughs>
Um, so yeah, this was awesome. I'd love to speak to you again, and uh, we'll speak. We'll see you soon. Yeah, man. Thanks so Thank much. You,